how long does it take to drive across the reservoir footprint from one side to the other? It takes, because the terrain is so rocky, it takes about a half an hour to get from one side of the reservoir to the other, maybe a little bit less. Tim Harper and I are stopped in his pickup truck. Harper is an affable man with a salmon-colored shirt and shiny sunglasses. But basically, if you look to the you look to the south and you look to the north of here, about two and a half miles that way is the reservoir. Two and a half miles this way is the reservoir. That's how big it is. So we're right, right around, we're smack dab in the middle of the reservoir. And what are we looking at right now? Right now, is the, this is farm fields. We're looking at sugar cane. We're looking at uh, farm pumps, farm ditches. Uh, this is all heavy production. Uh, big sugar, uh, sugar farmers are they're looking looking to harvest pretty soon. And this is going to be under 20 feet of water. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, when the reservoir is done. It's like a reef flooding of the Everglades. I'm Amy Green, and this is Drained, a podcast series about the massive plan to save the Everglades. Episode three. Define clean. Few components of Everglades restoration have drawn more debate or are more central to its mission of reviving a more natural water flow than a reservoir to be built south of Lake Okeechobee among the cane fields of the Everglades agricultural area. This is where rock was blasted. You want to get out here? I'll show you. Kick the rocks around, maybe. The Florida legislature agreed in 2017 to jumpstart construction on the reservoir in response to toxic algae, as you heard in the last episode. But sugar growers strongly oppose the reservoir on their land. A little slippery. Yeah, <laughs> be careful. In September, I drove down to the reservoir site to see the progress for myself. Construction will not begin until 2021 or 2022, but work already was underway on an adjoining marsh or stormwater treatment area that will filter the water of nutrient pollution before it flows into Everglades National Park to the south. My name is Tim Harper. I'm an engineer with the South Florida Water Management District, and I'm the construction manager of the project. Harper showed me around. After a long drive through the cane fields, I climbed out of Harper's truck and carefully stepped down a muddy embankment onto a construction site where workers were getting ready to blast through the limestone bedrock beneath the muck to make way for the stormwater treatment area. Because this rock is so hard, you can't just dig it up with, with regular equipment. You actually have to go in and blast it to, to break it into these chunks and then you can start excavating with regular equipment. A tracked drill rig, a tall and narrow machine larger than a backhoe, was drilling holes in the bedrock where the charges would be placed for the next series of blasts. And then on blast day, they'll throw the charges in there and then link everything up and bam. You got a big explosion. And the way it works is that the charges will go off in a line, and it'll start going boom, 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 boom. All down the line. And you'll start seeing rocks flying up everywhere, just boom, boom, boom. And uh, it's a pretty cool sight. When the reservoir is complete, projected in 2028, it will be monumental. 
Together, the reservoir and stormwater treatment area will cost some $3 billion. The reservoir's earthen embankments will reach 35 feet high. The water inside will be 20 feet deep. The STA and the reservoir together is about the size of Manhattan. And how much water are we talking about here? <laughs> We're talking lots and lots of water. Acre, lots and lots of acres, acre feet of water. Together, the reservoir and stormwater treatment area will be able to hold some 350,000 acre feet of water, enough to flood Manhattan with about four feet of water. The South Florida Water Management District says that will be enough to stem the water flow east and west from Lake Okeechobee by more than half. Harper says the idea is to recreate the historic Everglades here as much as possible. Eventually, the plan is to open the reservoir and stormwater treatment area to the public for recreation, like biking, fishing, and hunting. It's going to be gorgeous. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to look very beautiful and pristine, like a, like a beautiful, pristine wetland. You know, hopefully similar to what historically the Everglades used to look like. It's a lot of sawgrass, alligators. There's thousands of varieties of different birds. So hopefully we can bring all those native animals and native plants back into this area that help treat the water and uh, clean it up so we can move it south. I told you about how Everglades restoration is aimed at restoring a more natural water flow in the River of Grass, and how it also involves retaining more of the water that now is being dumped at the coast. But none of these measures will mean much if the water is not clean. And that leads us to one of the more fascinating narratives, I think, in Everglades restoration. How to define clean water in the Everglades and how to clean it up. President Bill Clinton signed Everglades restoration into law in December 2000, but debate over the River of Grass really began in earnest back in 1988. That was when the federal government sued the state of Florida over sugar growers' pollution in the Everglades. Specifically at issue was phosphorus flowing from the Everglades agricultural area, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Here, farmers raise vegetables, rice, and half of the nation's sugarcane, making the region the country's primary producer of the crop. The lawsuit contended the state was violating its own water quality laws by allowing the politically powerful sugar growers to discard polluted farm water in the protected Everglades. Phosphorus is a nutrient that helps plants grow. Too much of it in waterways can feed harmful algae blooms in the same way it nourishes crops and front lawns as part of our fertilizers. But the problem in the Everglades was a little different. Historically, there was almost no phosphorus in the river of grass, says Fred Sklar of the South Florida Water Management District. When people came along and started fertilizing their front lawns, when agriculture came along and fertilized their crops, um, and when just in general there's a runoff from civilization that was actually pumped into the Everglades to get rid of it for flood control, it created a nutrient problem. Back 
often the biggest sign of trouble was not harmful algae blooms, but cattails, which were supplanting the sawgrass at such a rate the situation was existential. Very soon, there no longer would be a river of grass. But before filing the lawsuit, the federal prosecutor wanted to know the threshold. How much was too much phosphorus in the fragile Everglades? He called someone who would know. Uh, My name is Dr. Ronald Jones, and I'm a scientist that worked in the Florida Everglades for nearly 30 years. And I have um, now since moved to Oregon, and I work at Willamette University as an instrumentation specialist. I just told him 10 parts per billion. That's the standard answer that you would get from the textbooks, from all the studies that I've ever done, and uh, um, work of, of hundreds of other scientists. 10 parts per billion. It's an incredibly small amount. I really can't explain. How it's, it's, it's so small that it's um, a part per billion. I mean, is is, is less than a drop of, of chlorine in your in your swimming pool. I mean, it's 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 just that, that tiny of an amount. Ten parts per billion is a higher quality water than your own drinking water. The, the water that comes out of the Everglades, historically, not necessarily anymore, but historically, a person could just take a cup of water, a cup, and drink right out of it. It was really clean, transparent water. The federal prosecutor filed the lawsuit with Jones as his star witness. And then? It went viral. <laughs> And in and, and that day and age, it was, there was no computers to go viral on. But I mean, it, it, it was um, in all the papers and the newspapers across the country, and and it was it was a major um, a major event that was taking place. By the early '90s, it was the most complex and highest profile environmental lawsuit in the country. The state spent millions of dollars fighting it. Court clerks wheeled the case file around in shopping carts. My first deposition. That took place, and I was the first scientist. I was the first scientist and the only scientist that was deposed at that time. Um, it, it took seven days, and I had probably fifteen bankers' boxes full of papers that that came with me into that room. Then, in 1993, in a scene that is the stuff of legend in Florida environmental history, then Governor Lawton Childs admitted the state was guilty. In a Miami courtroom, the governor declared, I am ready to stipulate today that the water is dirty. That's WMFE's Juan Gualda voicing the former governor. I am here and I brought my sword. I want to find out who I can give that sword to. He did make a figuratively uh, motion with his hands and love of laying his sword down onto the ground. What I am asking is to let us use our troops to clean up the battlefield now, to make this water clean. We want to surrender. Everybody sat there with their mouths open. We were not expecting Governor Childs to come in and and basically say uh, mea culpa to the to the federal judge, to Judge Hoover. So everybody was, was caught off guard. I think the only person that really wasn't wasn't caught off guard was the governor himself. 
The federal government and state reached a settlement, which led to a consent decree requiring the state and sugar growers to clean up the water. But the consent decree did not specify how much phosphorus actually was okay. That number was to be figured out later. And teeny tiny 10 parts per billion became a major political football. There were three institutions involved in trying to find that number. There was Duke University, which was paid by the sugar growers. There was Florida International University, which was paid by the Miccosukee tribe. The tribe is based on a federally designated reservation in the Everglades. And then there was the South Florida Water Management District. For years, the groups fought over whether the standard for phosphorus in the Everglades should be 10 parts per billion or something else. It was so stressful. It was important because at stake were millions of dollars in Everglades cleanup costs. A standard of 100 parts per billion would be much easier to meet than 10 parts per billion. We had people who talked to me after they were subpoenaed to be in front of, uh, to go to court to talk about the, the giant cattail infestation and who is to blame. And they were so burnt out from it, they were ready to quit. They weren't used to being treated like criminals. Ron Jones especially came under attack as the federal government's star witness. The opposing group sought to discredit his work. After one meeting, he went home and threw up. It was a very frightening uh, time for me and also a very exhilarating time because I had a lot of uh, good people, a lot of good people surrounded me. Um, that were working for the Everglades, and that was of great comfort. In 2001, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection set the standard at 10 parts per billion. But now there was a new problem. Well, no one knew how to get there. And so the the argument was, you can't do it. And so um, a massive technology search went into effect to try and figure out How in the world do we get to 10 parts per billion? One option was enormous sludge-producing chemical treatment factories. I think the first level of agreement was to build stormwater treatment areas with a target of 50 parts per billion coming out of that. Everyone assumed that that was the best they were going to do. Stormwater treatment areas are engineered wetlands designed to function in the same way the historic Everglades did, as a sieve. The murky farm water enters the marshes and the vegetative tissues absorb the nutrients. Slowly, over time, the water flows clear, as it once did. Construction began on a series of filter marshes that together would be the largest in the world. The scale of this is is beyond anyone's imagination, quite frankly. I think right now we're about at 55,000 acres of created wetland. That's more created wetland than anyone has ever created by at least uh, an order of magnitude. The most anyone's ever created, I think, is 5,000, and we did 55,000 acres. It's it's impressive. It really, I'm going to give you an idea of how big that is, it would to fly over that many acres, or to fly over our all our STAs, and there's six of them. 
would take you about 40 minutes in a helicopter, traveling at you know, 150 miles an hour. Today, the state has spent some $2 billion on the phosphorus problem in the Everglades, including the stormwater treatment areas. The filter marshes are working, but not completely. The South Florida Water Management District says some 90% of the water in the River of Grass now meets the 10 parts per billion standard. They're still building um, SDAs um, up in the Everglades agricultural area and north of Lake Okeechobee. So th these are huge. These are, are they are engineering projects that are, are considered to be, you know, uh, nothing of the kind is, it exists anywhere else. But the stormwater treatment areas represent only half of the solution to the dirty farm water. Such a peaceful sound, the sound of the breeze among the stalks. Yeah, that's what I like about living in South Florida. When you're, if you're sitting at home and you have palm trees in your backyard and you can hear the wind rustling through the palm trees, it's a nice sound. Same thing with sugarcane. It's a nice sound hearing, hearing the leaves. The stormwater treatment areas are one of two main components in the plan to clean up the farm water before it reaches the Everglades. Yeah, my name is Rick Roth. I'm the president of Roth Farms. I've been a, a, the primary owner of a family farm since uh, 1986. We are looking at a field of sugarcane that's about 10 to 12 foot tall. Uh, this field here, if I had to guess, was probably harvested in December or January. Sugar growers like Roth also have to stem the flow of their own phosphorus. We're uh, considered to be a medium-sized farmer in the Everglades agriculture areas. There's farmers that own as little as 500 acres, and there's farmers that own over 100,000 acres. So we're um, considered to be a medium-sized farmer. We grow about 20 different kinds of vegetables, radishes, lettuce, sweet corn, uh, celery and, and, and all kinds of other vegetables, cilantro, parsley, Chinese cabbage, dill, grow about 20 different kinds of vegetables, also grow sugarcane, also grow rice. We've been growing rice for over 40 years, harvesting rice, and we even grow sod. To do this, sugar growers are required to apply a series of farming techniques they help develop called best management practices. The practices involve things like using less fertilizer and adjusting irrigation techniques. Some other examples of BMPs are growing cover crops like rice in the summertime. So you're 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 uh, you're building the soil back up and you're and you're you're holding the, the water for longer periods of time. It's uh, cleaning your ditches um, to make sure that the soil is not being flushed into the into the canals with rainfall. So you clean your ditches regularly. You clean your canals, and so by us changing the way we handle the water before we pump it off the farm, changing the way we put out the fertilizer uh, to put it in the bed instead of on top of the bed, we've reduced the amount of nutrients that are running off the, off the field with the soil. Sugar growers have gone beyond what's required of them, reducing the flow of phosphorus from the Everglades agricultural area by some 55% on average over the past 20 years. The requirement is applied regionally, not individually, and this means if there are one or two farms whose phosphorus levels actually are increasing, that's okay as long as the region as a whole meets the requirement, which it has. 
it's virtually impossible uh, for me to move to another state and start farming. It's not that I can't do it, it's just so different. It's a total different soil, it's a total different water management, it's a total different state structure, it's a total different nutrients required, it's a total different marketing system, you're growing different crops. So my best choice is to stay here and do the job right and enjoy being a farmer in the EAA. And it's really cool when you think about it that that's what, that's what life is really all about. It's about dealing with challenges, whether it's your marriage or your kids in college or whatever. It's about working through the problems, working with people, and it's worth building a relationship where you can, where you can try new things and get things done. And it's a very satisfying feeling. Finally, progress in Everglades restoration. The water is cleaner, even if it's not fully clean. Projects are in the works aimed at holding onto more water and moving it south as it once flowed, rather than east and west. But with Florida's climate changing at an accelerating rate, will it be in time to save the fragile river of grass and South Florida's drinking water supply? Next on Drained, episode four, never-ending restoration. Space travel, to the degree we accomplished it going to the moon and back, uh, was a cinch uh, when you compare it to the complexities of the hydrology of the Everglades. Drained is a podcast from WMFE and the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. It's reported and hosted by me, Amy Green, and edited by Trevor Aronson and Matthew Petty. Mix and sound design by Paul Vikas. Mac Dula, Jenny Babcock, and Ryan Ellison provided additional production help. Cliff Tumatel also contributed. Special thanks to Johns Hopkins University Press. Thanks for listening.